Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. In our last podcast, I spoke with NCBC staff member John DiCamillo about ethical challenges concerning vaccines, including those for COVID-19. The discussion focused on what the Catholic Church teaches about vaccines developed and manufactured using cell lines derived from aborted children, as well as the responsibilities surrounding their use. Today, we take the next step in the conversation and discuss practical ways that the Catholic Church is responding to the vaccine issue. We are joined by two distinguished guests. The first is Archbishop Joseph Nauman of the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas, Chairman of the Committee on Pro-Life Activities of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or USCCB. Our second guest is Greg Schleppenbach, Associate Director of the USCCB's Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities. Archbishop Nauman and Greg Schleppenbach, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's good to be with you and your audience. Likewise, great to be a part of this podcast, and thanks for all the great work of NCBC. Well, thank you, and thank you for all the great work that the both of you do as well. So I ask this of every new guest on our podcast. Uh, can you tell our listeners briefly uh, a bit about you, your background, specifically your education, and experiences that led you to the work that you're doing now? Archbishop Nauman. Yes, thanks, Joe. Well, I'm originally from St. Louis. I was ordained a priest there in 1975, 45 years ago, a long time ago. And uh, I was a parish priest, parochial vicar. I was in my second assignment, and I was asked by the archbishop, at that time, Archbishop John May, if I would uh, take the position of the priest's coordinator of the pro-life committee and office for the archdiocese. So I accepted uh, his invitation to do that. It actually was in 1984. It was in the summer, and I had just watched the Democratic Pro Convention in which uh, Geraldine Ferraro was uh, the nominee for the vice president, mm -hmm. a Catholic woman, and she um, immediately began to uh, say why you could be Catholic and be for legalized abortion. And that saddened me to, to a great extent. And so when I received the call asking if I would be willing to be involved at the archdiocesan level in the pro-life ministry, um, I always say Geraldine Ferraro helped and inspired me in this. <laughs> and, um, you know, I told the archbishop at the time, I said, you know, I, I've not even been the priest moderator in the parishes where I've been for the pro-life committee. I said, you there are probably others that are more knowledgeable, but he said, well, you can learn. And um, and so that, for about 10 years, I held that position. And because of that, you know, it gave me the opportunity and some, way, some ways forced me to really study these issues. So I, I th always thought that was a blessing in my own life. Certainly coming into the pro-life movement, you're brought into association with remarkable people. But it also uh, forced me in a way and allowed me to carve out the time really to kind of study these issues. So after I, I became a bishop in 1997, and I'm not exactly sure when I think, but I'm, I'm on my seventh term. 
on the pro-life committee, uh, and be, partially because I think before being consecrated a bishop, I'd been involved with pro-life activities at the national and at our local level. Uh, that's why I kept getting reappointed to that committee, and now I chair the committee. So that's kind of the short background of how I got involved with the pro-life movement. And and one of those aspects of the movement is this whole uh, area of vaccines and making sure that they're ethically produced, um, which is a big issue right now with the COVID-19. Yeah, that's a huge issue. I can't help but uh, think of the irony that back in 1984, Geraldine Ferraro, a Catholic politician who was pro-abortion, was she was probably the exception rather than the rule, and today it's completely reversed. Uh, it's, you know, the rule is there are many Catholic politicians, particularly in a certain political party, who are pro-abortion, and and to find one who isn't is is the exception. It's it's just amazing the world we live in. <laughs> Greg, a little background from you. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, uh, youngest of 11 children. And in 1973, my mom, uh, in addition to raising 11 children, got immediately involved in the pro-life movement uh, after Roe versus Wade um, and started a pro-life chapter in our little town and county. And uh, and so I grew up with uh, right to life meetings in our home. It was an issue that was kind of always at you know, the forefront because of the work of my mom at the forefront of, uh, you know, my upbringing. It was an issue I was you know, introduced to and aware of. Um, and when I graduated from high school, went to the University of Nebraska, I uh, immediately got involved in the Students for Life group there and eventually uh, became president of that group. And upon graduation, got involved in the local Right to Life chapter as well. And in that experience, um, I was approached by um, uh, a person who was involved in in Right to Life group in in Lincoln, Nebraska, and also was on the board of the Nebraska Catholic Conference. And she told me that the the bishops, this was back in in, uh, around 1990, that the bishops had decided to create a full-time position to uh, direct the pro-life program for the three dioceses of Nebraska. And I was uh, privileged enough to be uh, hired as the, the first person to, uh, to fill that position and in that, in that job developed um, the program, uh, parish pro-life coordinators, uh, the whole pastoral plan for pro-life activities. And so I did that for 23 years before I took over as executive director of the Nebraska Catholic Conference for a couple of years. Um, and then Washington, D.C. came calling and uh, when Richard Dorflinger retired from the, his position as associate director of the Secretary of Pro-Life Activities, um, I was encouraged to apply, and I did, and uh, was offered that job and moved out to the D.C. area with my wife um, uh, in uh, June of 2016, so coming up on four years uh, in this position. Very good. So, uh, so we have a couple of people on our podcast today who are very well informed and very well connected uh, in terms of pro-life activity. So it's great to see. So Archbishop Nauman, what exactly is the Committee on Pro-Life Activities of the USCCB and what's its primary focus? So the committee is one of the standing committees of the Bishop's Conference and it has a, a very specific focus to defend and promote 
the sanctity of human life. And we specifically are focused on issues of abortion, euthanasia, infanticide. Um, we do, although we don't do the advocacy work so much uh, on the issue of uh, capital punishment, we do a lot of educational work around that. And of course, there are a lot of related issues. Right. This vaccine is one of them. Mm-hmm. And as Greg mentioned, um, a long, long time ago, the Bishop's Conference developed what it called a pastoral plan for pro-life activities that I think was one of the first uh, uh, missions of the committee. And it's a four-pronged plan uh, that first, everything we do has to be built on the foundation of prayer. Secondly, we work uh, to educate both our own people within the church, but then the larger community as well. Third is our pastoral programs, which are programs that we try to, um, as a church, to do everything we can to make sure that there are alternatives to abortion and to support uh, women and couples that are in the midst of a crisis or difficult pregnancy. And also we uh, also uh, foster programs to help those that have have been involved with abortion and deeply regret it. So our post-abortion healing programs would also be part of that pastoral effort. And then, uh, and similarly with euthanasia, to try to make sure that there are alternatives to euthanasia. And then our fourth area is advocacy. So we believe that it's important to change the public policies in our country and our law, because the law not only permits such things as abortion, and now in some cases, in some places, euthanasia in some states, but it, it actually teaches it. <laughs> it our, our laws don't permit the killing of innocent human life. Um, and so when we permit abortion, we're saying to people, particularly to young people, well, this must not really be the taking of life because our laws wouldn't permit it. So, so uh, we think the advocacy is a very important part of what the church is called to do and have a presence in the public square. Yeah, absolutely. Just as a, a quick follow-up to that, what have you seen and what would you like to see the Committee on Pro-Life Activities accomplish during your tenure as its chair? Oh, well, that's easy. We'd like to overturn Roe <laughs> Just a little thing like that. But Just a little. Now, we actually, the committee's gone through an exercise, and we've looked at all four of those pillars and looked at what can we do in each of those areas. Um, one of the things that emerged from that, and partially because, you know, the, there is the possibility that the court, the current court might at least begin to roll back Roe versus Wade, if not overturn it. But that's provoked a lot of activity in the states and some states where, uh, like New York, where they passed this um, aggressive uh, bill to to preserve legalized abortion in the state of New York, even if the Supreme Court would overturn it and actually have permit infanticide with uh, with their current law. And so, because of that, the committee, you know, thought. What can we do uh, as a committee? And if the court were to overturn Roe versus Wade or roll it back, there would be even more people that would need alternative services. And so that 
as one of the priorities that's emerged right now is, is a program that's called Walking with Moms in Need. And we're trying to, with children we can't necessarily at this time protect by the law to, to rescue them with love, to support mothers who might be tempted to choose abortion, to surround them with support and with all the resources that they need. And so that's, a, I think, one of the initiatives that's come out of our committee at this time that I, I feel is a very important one. Yeah. And I especially, if you make a really, really good point that I think a, there's a number of people who don't really understand this. They, I think there's an idea out there that if and when the United States Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, that abortion simply becomes illegal. And it's not the case. The, 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 the laws just go back to the states where they were prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973. So it's almost as if you know, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, there's, you know, instead of, there's a lot more work to be done, you know, and, it, and it's done on, on 50 different levels in 50 different contexts. So, yeah, it's a great point to bring up. So, Greg, uh, your work focuses primarily on the legislative aspects of the Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities work. Can you explain what this entails? Be happy to. Uh, as the Archbishop mentioned, the, um, one of the four pillars is public is public policy, and so the, the pastoral plan recognizes that you know changing the law isn't the only way that we protect human life. There's lots of ways in which we need to change the culture to make it more receptive to human life and protective of human life. But the law is a big part of it, and the law can be a great teacher. Um, and so it's important that we're engaged in in public policy efforts to. Justice, um, and so the pastoral plan actually lays out components of a comprehensive public policy program that that we try to follow, with the guidance of our uh, committee in terms of developing priorities where we're going to focus our time. Because it's obviously when you're talking about abortion and biomedical research and end of life issues, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, and palliative care and hospice and all kinds of things, it's a very broad and heavy. Um, public policy agenda, then it's it's pretty difficult to do everything. And so we have to be uh, focused and have priorities. Um, and so the committee helps us that we propose priorities and the committee guides us and approves those priorities, um, which has involved, you know, a number of things you have to take into consideration, you know, what what are the uh, what, what, what's, what's the political situation? What's possible? What can we get done? Not only in terms of what the current uh, regime of Roe versus Wade allows, uh, but what we can get done politically. You know, as, as most people are aware, this is hardly shocking news. Uh, Congress uh, is not able to get much done these days. Very partisan. And uh, any, any kind of legislation which is, that's controversial, which abortion is perhaps at the top of the list, it's very difficult to get legislation passed because of, you know, number one, getting getting the majorities you need to pass legislation, but also um, there are um, various procedural uh, uh, tools that the minority can use, and one of them is a filibuster. And so, for example, in the Senate, uh, the Senate has a filibuster rule, and so generally any uh, difficult, controversial legislation has to have 60 votes to proceed. And that's very difficult, especially in this divided time to get 60 
So, so you have to look at all those different factors in terms of where do you place your, your time and your priorities, um, you know, and in times when you've got more of a hostile Congress, we have to do more defense to protect long-standing pro-life policies like the high and other restrictions on funding for abortion. Um, you know, sometimes we have to focus our, our priorities on legislation that's intended to be sort of almost more messaging in its in its approach to show how extreme the abortion laws are in this country. And, and legislation like the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act uh, is such a is such a uh, piece of legislation. And and late term abortion bans like the twenty week or pain capable bans show you know how extreme our current status of laws is in this country. So sometimes our priorities and our focus and strategy is is on emphasizing those kinds of uh, realities when we can't actually pass more protective legislation. But ultimately, you know, a passage of a constitutional amendment is what we're working for, you know, and before we even get there, overturning Roe versus Wade so that, you know, states then are are going to have the freedom to pass protective laws that they can't currently pass under Roe versus Wade. Um, but ultimately, a constitutional amendment is, is, is the goal. It's laid out by the pastoral plan because, you know, as I've said to many a pro-abortion member of Congress who claims to want to reduce the numbers of abortion, which is a goal we share, um, you, we will never have true justice for unborn children and, and until they are fully recognized and protected in our, in our constitution. And, and currently, that that constitution is being misused in a way that that takes that or violates uh, those basic um, civil and human rights. So um, that's a bit about our our work. We also um, a very important part of our activity and our advocacy is grassroots. It's one of our real muscles, if you will, uh, is a part of the church in our in our advocacy at the federal and state level. So we. Part of our effort is to build as big a grassroots network as we can, and, and we have a related organization called the National Committee for Human Life Amendment or Human Life Action uh, that helps do that, to organize and build a grassroots uh, network that we can activate when there's legislation that we need to um, uh, speak to or have our, our grassroots contact their members of, members of Congress to either support or oppose legislation. So that's a big part of our policy work as well. Yeah. Are there other non-legislative things that you're involved with as well? There are. I, I get involved with, um, you know, building coalitions uh, to uh, work more effectively in our, in our um, not only advocacy and policy work, but beyond. Good example of it, and Joe, you're familiar with this, is the, the task force that um, I've helped organize on hospice and palliative care. Very well organized, I should say. Thank you. Um, and, and so the purpose of that is, is to bring together experts within the church uh, in, in, in medicine, Catholic doctors and, and institutions, healthcare institutions, ethicists, moral theologians and others to really take a look at um, uh, the very important uh, uh, health care outreach or ministry of hospice and palliative care. It's, it's important in so many ways uh, to provide truly fully um, Health care that is in conform that is um, uh, responds to the totality of the human person, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and such. And there's you know there's some concerning clouds on the horizon in this area of of ethical abuses going on within hospice and palliative care 
uh, threaten to undermine people's confidence in it. And so we're working to to identify those ethical concerns and, and root them out and restore you know, confidence in hospice and palliative care and ensure that, that it is promoted and in, in, in as best as it can be available throughout our country. So that's an example of it. A work on the vaccine issue is another example, advocating for ethical vaccines, um, uh, the Walking with Moms in Need initiative that Archbishop Nauman mentioned, as well as working with and assisting state Catholic conference directors um, in their work. So um, a lot of different areas that, that I get involved with. Yeah. Excellent. I'm uh, I'm thinking as this uh, the palliative care and hospice task force moves over or moves on or continues on. I think uh, maybe another podcast is in the works, but that that that's for another day. So we'll, we'll <laughs> sounds talk, good. We'll talk about that later on. All right. So let's let's move to the question of vaccines. And I was wondering if um, either or both of you could talk a little bit about where the USCCB Secretariat for Pro-Life Activities was, or is, I should say, where is it on the vaccine issue, even apart from COVID-19? There's a lot of questions out there that people have, you know, people call us asking us questions about vaccines. Um, and I'm sure your office gets gets some of these questions as well, too. But where is where is the USCCB um, Pro-Life Committee on the question of vaccine? Archbishop, would you like to it up and I'll uh, and I'll sure. add on. Right, you can correct what I say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it's an area that we have a great concern about. Um, and as you said before, COVID-19, the way that some of the vaccines that are commonly used, the way that they've been developed, some of them have used cell lines that were recovered from aborted fetuses. Now, that uh, these cell lines happened a long time ago. Uh, it wasn't, they weren't, um, the abortions weren't done for this purpose, but uh, it, it has created an ethical problem. And we, because of public health reasons, uh, and because there may not be any viable alternative, and the relationship is relatively what we would consider ethically remote. Uh, the church has permitted uh, its members to be able to, to access those vaccines, but with the, the strong caveat that, that we have to object to the way that they've been developed and advocate, advocate for the development of morally ethical, uncomplicated vaccines. And now with COVID-19, we're at the, the development stage. So this is a very important moment. We didn't have that same opportunity with some of the other vaccines, but at this moment, we have the chance now to have our voice heard before the vac vaccines have been uh, fully developed. And so that's why, you know, myself and the three other bishops representing other committees, we send a letter uh, to the Federal Drug and Administration, um, urging them to make sure that there was a ethically appropriate vaccine available to people, and asking them actually to incentivize the development of vaccines that are ethically made, not made from these cell lines that were recovered from aborted fetuses. Yeah, we'll get into that uh, letter in a, in a minute. I want to talk about that in, in some more detail. Greg, do you have any anything to add? 
Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, so I, I know in your last podcast, you talked a bit more about the uh, the church's teaching, the Pontifical Academy for Life and right. Dignitas Personae and such. And as the Archbishop mentioned that, you know, these these um, statements and documents from the Vatican, in, including in 2005, where it specifically addressed in some detail um, this moral uh, complication of vaccines that are produced from these uh, cell lines that have their origin in abortion, that um, that it, that document, um, in addition to saying that in certain cases, under certain circumstances, that it can be morally permissible to use those vaccines, it did uh, lay out a very clear and grave obligation or duty uh, to Catholics, especially fathers of families and doctors and others, right. um, to advocate for uh, vaccines that don't have a connection to abortion. And, you know, I, I, I'm afraid that the, that the church writ large has not done enough um, to do that since 2005. I know from, from the perspective of the, the pro-life secretariat, even before uh, my tenure, there were some efforts to um, raise awareness about this duty and to coalesce Catholic individuals and institutions to urge pharmaceutical companies to, um, to use other alternative cell lines for the production of vaccines. Um, uh, we also have provided some guidance to uh, dioceses and schools with regard to policies about allowing uh, students to you know, opt out of or have a conscientious objection to vaccines um, and, and be able to you know, still enroll in school based upon you know, inquiries that we had gotten over the years from bishops about this. Um, and in response to that, the pro-life committee discussed that this was back in 2007 um, about providing some guidance based upon that 2005 guidance of the Vatican, you know, and, and essentially saying while circumstances can uh, be different in different locations that will, would require one policy or another, generally speaking, you know, following that guidance of the 2005 uh, Pontifical Academy for Life, that you know, especially in, in locations where the public schools, for example, uh, allow those conscientious exemptions that the Catholic school systems should consider doing so as well. So we've provided that kind of guidance in the past um, to dioceses and schools. Um, a couple of years ago, GlaxoSmithKline uh, announced that they had produced a new shingles vaccine called Shingrix. And um, and and that was the first uh, available shingles vaccine that did not utilize uh, the, the aborted fetal cell lines. The previous one produced by Merck did. And so this vaccine not only was produced, but it ended up getting sort of a favorable uh, review or promotion by the by the FDA because they found it to be even more efficacious than, than exactly. other vaccines for shingles. And so we took that opportunity to urge the dioceses and bishops and, and, and individual Catholics to write letters to GlaxoSmithKline uh, thanking them for producing this, to let them know we're watching and we care about this and we want to encourage you to continue to produce vaccines uh, without recourse to these aborted fetal cell lines. So those are some of the things that we've done in the past to advocate uh, for uh, ethical vaccines. And then, you know, in this case of um, the COVID vaccine, it, uh, you know, obviously this was another good opportunity as uh, as proposals were being put forward for 
uh, vaccines uh, against the COVID virus to do similar types of advocacy. Yeah, I'm just uh, going back to the Shingrix vaccine. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline can't keep it on the shelves right now. It's it, there's there's waits for it because it's so popular, and and you know it's amazing what happens when a when a vaccine is is made from you know is ethically sourced. It's it's there's a demand for it, so that's always a good thing. So I'd like to um, move to the primary reason for our interview today, and this is why I, I requested uh, the interview. It's it's to speak of the letter that Archbishop Nauman already mentioned. So on April 27th of 2020, Archbishop Nauman, along with Archbishop Coakley in Oklahoma City, Bishop Rhodes in Fort Wayne, South Bend, Indiana, and Bishop Dorfler of Marquette, Michigan, sent a joint letter to Stephen Hahn, who is director of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, concerning the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, Greg, we already started speaking about it a little bit, but what was, what was the impetus for this letter? Yeah, well, the, the, the main impetus was uh, the news reports that were coming out about the development of a COVID vaccine and, um, you know, subsequent uh, uh, examination of those proposals revealing that some of them were proposing methods that utilize the aborted fetal cell lines. And so it became evident, as, as especially as this was getting more news or more um, notice within the pro-life community, that we needed to do something. We needed to speak out and and rather than just simply issue a statement, uh, we thought it would be more effective for us to actually develop a coalition letter mm-hmm. um, to the FDA, uh, raising awareness about that this issue, you know, that there is that there are ethical concerns around some of these proposals uh, that have are using the aborted fetal cell lines. Um, and and to also urge them to ensure that uh, at least one vaccine or an alternative vaccine is available that uh, does not utilize these aborted fetal cell lines. Um, and so the impetus and the nature behind the, uh, behind the letter, and we were able to get 20 other organizations or individuals to sign on to that letter to give it added weight and, 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 and impetus, but that, that was, was the main purpose for it. And, and, and it was also, again, a re- response to this call by the Vatican in, in its various documents to, uh, to this, this, this serious moral duty to advocate for ethical vaccines. And you know, if, if prior to the development of uh, a vaccine like this isn't the time, then I don't know when it is. So... <laughs> Felt that we needed to do something in a significant way to to raise this issue with the FDA. Archbishop Nauman, any anything to add about the message that the letter sought to convey to the FDA director? Yeah, I, I mean, I think all of us today uh, are hoping and praying for a vaccine to be developed. We, you know, we see that. I think our public health officials see that as the only way that we'll. Get, totally get past this COVID-19. And so uh, that the importance of that vaccine for the country, for our, our public health, you know, I think was very evident. And I was getting calls from bishops asking, what is the bishops' conference going to say about this, and as well as from individuals. And, of course, knowing the history, the the ethically compromised history of many of the vaccines that are in use today. Um, I felt it was urgent that we try to be proactive in this and get 
the church's voice, as, as, and as Greg indicated, along with some other coalition partners, uh, to appeal to this administration, which has been, you know, I think sympathetic to the pro-life issues and has really done a lot of, um, of welcome support for pro-life issues to appeal to them, as I said before, uh, to incentivize the, the, these companies that are involved with trying to develop vaccines to to use cell lines that don't have any moral complications with abortion. Right. There's a line in that letter that I, I really love. Um, you know, the, the, the bishops, the four bishops and the signatories say, we strongly urge our federal government to ensure that fundamental moral principles are followed in the development of such vaccines. Most importantly, the principle that human life is sacred and should never be exploited. I, I, that line just, you know, it hits at the nail right on the head, um, identifying certainly the ethical issues involved and in, in what the USCCB is trying to do through the letter. How was the letter received by the FDA? How did it respond to it? Well, I can answer that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just uh, received a response, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, unfortunately, it was somewhat perfunctory and a bit dismissive. It um, uh, acknowledged the fact that they have approved of vaccines in the past that utilize these aborted fetal cell lines and then made mention of, um, in their view, that there is um, need for continued use of these cell lines, not only for the production of a uh, future vaccines, but for other types of treatments, and that it is somewhat essential in their view, um, which is, you know, from what I understand from uh, pro-life uh, experts in the area of vaccines and science uh, and research, uh, completely untrue. And I, I think you can also look at the fact that uh, of the 15 or so vaccine proposals for a COVID vaccine that are currently or close to human clinical trials, um, 10 of them are not using uh, these aborted fetal cell lines. Five of them are. So all of the evidence suggests that there is no need to have recourse to aborted fetal cell lines uh, in order to produce any vaccine, let alone a COVID virus vaccine. So that was a bit disappointing, but we, um, we certainly intend, we, we sent the letter to the FDA, but we copied um, uh, both the president and vice president as well, the secretary of health and human services. And it, it is certainly our intention to continue to advocate with those administration officials and to, to again, make clear what our ask is. Uh, we're not even asking them to, in this particular case, you know, reject the use of, of those cell lines, but to at least at the very, very least, this is such a modest ask, to ensure that there is is an alternative vaccine available for those whose conscience um, is is um, is troubled by um, vaccines that utilize these aborted fetal cell lines. So uh, again, very modest ask, and you know we'll continue to urge them the, to the extent that they intend to continue throwing grants and funding towards these various proposals to to make sure that they're putting money towards uh, proposals, vaccine proposals that do not utilize aborted fetal cell lines. Yeah. I'd like to pick up on the conscience question in a minute, but Archbishop Nauman, any anything to 
add to the FDA's response to to the uh, to the letter? Yeah, it was disappointing, and um, you know, I think part of the the moral issue here is that there's an effort to to make abortion acceptable. And one of the ways to try to do that is to say, well, look at all these ways that we can use these aborted babies' body parts or tissue um, Bingo. Yep. For, for good, for the all these good things for those that are living now. And, you know, we saw that in the embryonic stem cell research issue some years ago. And, and of course, nothing really therapeutic is to my knowledge, has ever been developed through embryonic stem cell research, but there was None. this You're great, right. great push to do that. Um, whereas adult stem cells, we a lot of therapies have been developed through that. But, but I think that the same thing is involved with these vaccines. And as Greg said, there's no reason to use them, except I think there may be a financial reason in some mm-hmm. cases that these uh, different corporations have have used them in the past and maybe have ownership of them but there are there are it isn't necessary for the development of the, these vaccines to use a tissue recovered from abortion aborted fetuses and but we're concerned that this is being used again to to make abortion palatable to the american public in general and uh it's really I mean, it's a it's a form of cannibalism in a sense, you know, uh, to use another person for the benefit of others. And there's no one that's more defenseless than the unborn child, the, uh, the embryo. And to use them, to harvest them in order to, for the health benefits of the living, is just, it's an immoral um, action. And, and so... I think it, this is an important issue, and as the church, we're concerned about the public health. We all want to see a vaccine developed quickly, um, but there's no reason why that vaccine can't be ethically developed. I'd like to go back to the to the letter that the four bishops and others um, signed. The letter also states, and this is a quote: "It is critically important that Americans have access to a vaccine that is produced ethically." No American should be forced to choose between being vaccinated against this potentially deadly virus and violating his or her conscience, unquote. Greg, why does the letter emphasize conscience? Well, it emphasizes conscience because it's a, it's a broader construct than religious beliefs. So, for example, uh, there certainly are plenty of individuals, pro-life individuals, um, who may not have religious beliefs or teachings that oppose abortion and a vaccine that's connected to it, but they still have objections in conscience to using vaccines that are connected to the evil of abortion. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the main reason. But also, uh, I would again point back to the 2005 uh, statement by the Pontifical Academy for Life and the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith um, on moral coercion uh, or rather on the um, guidance on the vaccines. And the very last point that it makes in, in its uh, summary of the document is it says such cooperation occurs in a context of moral coercion of the conscience of parents who are forced to choose to act against their conscience or otherwise to put the health of their children and of the population as a whole at risk. So 
that really is that's, that's a, sort of exactly the same point that we made in our letter that it is it is it is fundamentally wrong to force people to either violate their conscience or uh, you know potentially put the health of their children or health of the population in this case uh, as a whole at risk. So that that's the main reason why we focused on the term conscience. Archbishop Nauman, anything to add to to Greg's words? No, I, I think he's said it well, and it, it really it creates an unnecessary moral dilemma for people, and yeah. and uh, and it's an avoidable dilemma. So that's why it's very important. I think at this time uh, that people of faith, as well as people who who oppose the the killing of the innocent unborn on conscience reasons that we we have our voices heard during this development stage for the vaccine. Right. And I can say just from personal experience, we at the NCBC get questions fairly often from parents asking this very thing. And it's not about COVID-19, but it's about, you know, the the normal battery of immunizations for their children. And they're they're really torn about, you know, do we do it? Do we not do it? So this, the, you know, this is a very, um, a very timely and a very serious issue. So in addition to the uh, four bishop signatories, the letter was also signed by 20 other organizations. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of these organizations and let our audience know how the Pro-Life Committee and the USCCB as a whole works with these organizations to promote the pro-life cause. Archbishop Nauman. Well, I'm going to I'm going to hand that one off to Greg because he knows the coalition members better than I do. But I will say this, you know, that there was an effort early on in the uh, pro-abortion movement to to make this seem like it was only a Catholic issue, it was only an issue that Catholics care about. And I think it, to really, uh, not just on the vaccine issue, but uh, to really protect human life, we need to uh, expose that lie that we're not the only ones that care about this. There are many that share our concerns and that's why these coalitions are very important. But Greg, you can talk about specific signatures on this one. Yes, I'd be happy to. So there's um, a number of really every every single um, organization that signed on are, are organizations that we work with in one way or another on one issue or another. For example, uh, first the first uh, signatory after the bishops was uh, Joseph Meany at the. Who's that? I have no idea who that is. <laughs> Well, you're in trouble if you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, we we just really treasure and value uh, the great work of NCBC, and 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 we've had long time partnership uh, with our office, uh, the pro life secretariat and the NCBC on on a whole host of ethical uh, questions and actions, um, and so that we have long time uh, for a long time worked with the NCBC, collaborated with them on a variety of projects. Catholic Medical Association, uh, the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, uh, and other a number of other pro-life or Catholic doctors or nurses groups that signed on. Obviously, very very critically important to so much of the work that we do on abortion, on conscience rights, on a variety of things. To have those uh, experts in these professions who are, you know, the lead voice. You know, the, there's it's obviously important for the church and the bishops to be out there speaking and leading and inspiring on the life issues. But we also need those with particular areas of expertise 
who oftentimes with the general public have more credibility or uh, sway um, than maybe the bishops do. And so, you know, having the credibility of and the expertise of various organizations, especially in the medical profession, healthcare profession is very, very important. Um, we also uh, have a lot of interaction with uh, organizations like the John Paul II Medical Research Institute, Dr. Alan Moy, and the great work that he does, obviously, in this area of, of research and vaccines and treatments and such. And Debbie Vintage at Children of God for Life, who has done yeoman's work uh, for many, many years to raise awareness about the aborted fetal cell lines and their use in various vaccines to a number of other pro-life groups that operate uh, at the national level as well as, you know, at the state level uh, that we work in coalition with and in our advocacy work at the federal level and sometimes at the state level as well. So as the Archbishop said, uh, it, it is really important that we be as united as we can in, in, in battling this, this great evil of the culture of deaths. So uh, we are very pleased and Privileged to be able to work with so many great organizations in this in this you know, great uh, and important fight. Yeah, there was a couple that that jumped out at me. And um, Archbishop, you said a few minutes ago that uh, proponents of using these, uh, you know, the the cell lines from aborted children will they'll, they'll try to cast it as a Catholic issue. And one of the signatories was Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Religious Liberty. Commission. So that's, you know, that goes to that point that there certainly are um, non-Catholic Christians who are, who see these uh, issues as being very important. I was also really happy to see just for our, you know, sort of the millennial generation or, or the young adult generation that uh, students for students for life of America and live action were also signatories on it as well too. So it's um, so kudos for, for expanding that coalition. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, uh, and, and you were also instrumental in helping to reach out to some of these organizations wow. and appreciate that as well. But uh, um, a lot of really great groups, diverse groups that that uh, focus on different areas, different demographics in our in our pro life battle. And so, it uh, to have that diversity represented on this letter. Well, Greg, I can't take credit for that because it was really my daughter who said, "Well, what about live action? What about Students for Life?" So it was. <laughs> That, that was her, so I, we have to give her credit for that. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Archbishop Nauman. Well, first of all, I'd like to echo what Greg said at the beginning. I'm so grateful for the National Catholic Bioethics Center for all the work, the important work that the center does um, to help Catholics un understand some of the moral implications on a lot of complicated issues today, ethical issues today, and to advise them and counsel them and to be a resource. We've always had um, the head of the NCBC as a consultant to the Pro-Life Committee. Mm -hmm. um, I'd also say, you know, that elections have consequences. And, you know, in a, a, a republic that we live in, we, we get somewhat the public policies we deserve. And the bishops in our most recent communication in the November meeting talked again about the, the pro-life issue being a preeminent issue um, because it attacks innocent human life when it's most vulnerable because it, it the sheer numbers of it, I mean, almost a million abortions a year, uh, over 60 million since 1973 in the United States. 
and because it, it's destructive of the family, uh, because it hits at the core of the family, the place where life should be most protected, and it, it, it pits mothers against their children. So um, this remains, you know, I think a very important issue and an issue that uh, all people of goodwill should really evaluate those that we choose for public office where where they stand on this particular issue. Greg, final words of wisdom. You know, I want to speak to those in the field who, um, you know, either because they've been doing pro-life work for a long time or have been following the pro-life issue for a long time may be feeling a bit uh, discouraged or overwhelmed by yeah, the culture of death that we fight against and its magnitude to say, you know, I've been doing this work, pro-life work for uh, going on 30 years. And, um, you know, the, the one thing that has kept me in, in the battle has been uh, constantly remembering the fact that we operate as Christians from victory and not just for victory. And that what our Lord calls us to do is um, to utilize whatever gifts and talents he's given us, to put them enthusiastically and fully and without fear uh, to the cause of life. And, you know, there's going to be times when we win, there's going to be times when we lose, uh, but our Lord doesn't call us to be victorious, as Mother Teresa says. He calls us to be faithful. And that is what we need to keep in mind as we do this work. Never, 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 never give up. Continue to fight evil uh, day in and day out and to be faithful and persistent in doing the will of God. That's what's important, and that's what we're ultimately going to have to account for when we stand before God at the end of our lives. Amen. <laughs> Archbishop Joseph Nauman and Greg Schleppenbach, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, hover on the Blogs and Podcast button, and then click Bioethics on Air. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Thank you for listening today, and may the Lord's peace be with you.